This is Rachel Fields and Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers and Attorney General Josh Cole are seeking to intervene in one of Wisconsin's redistricting lawsuits. The suit filed last month asks a federal court to draw Wisconsin's next electoral maps should the governor and Republican-held legislature fail to reach an agreement. The two Democrats argue that Evers should be able to offer input in the litigation since redistricting is handled by the state's executive and legislative branches. According to the governor's office, the legislature has already been allowed to intervene in the lawsuit, and Republicans have requested the courts outright dismiss the case. Michael Gableman is asking Wisconsin's county clerks to retain all records related to the November 2020 election and to notify him if any have been destroyed. Gableman, a former state Supreme Court justice, is leading one of three Republican-led investigations into last year's presidential election. Two of those, including Gableman's investigation, were called for by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. The Associated Press reports that Gableman is also planning to reach out to all of Wisconsin's municipal clerks in the coming weeks. Per state law, clerks are required to preserve voting records for 22 months after an election. Gableman's move comes as legislative Republicans are facing a growing divide over the 2020 election, with one side led by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and the other by Representative Janelle Branchin, the Republican chair of the Assembly's powerful Elections Committee. Branchin and Voss are currently spearheading competing election reviews, with Branchin accusing accusing Voss and Gableman of not going far enough in their investigation. Rebecca Clayfish, Wisconsin's former Republican lieutenant governor, has raised $1.2 million since announcing her 2022 gubernatorial run last Thursday. According to the Associated Press, that sum includes the roughly $190,000 Clayfish had in her war chest going into her campaign announcement. Wisconsin's Department of Justice is warning residents to be aware of ransomware attacks. According to the Attorney General's Office, the Federal Bureau of Investigation has received 41 ransomware reports in Wisconsin so far this year. That's compared to 30 reports for the entirety of 2020. As its name implies, ransomware is a type of software that will hold a system hostage until the victim pays out a ransom to the hackers. Dane County's Board of Health is pushing back on a county supervisor after he called the county's mask mandate into question. Supervisor Jeff Weigand, who was just elected in a special write-in election last month, is floating a resolution asking local public health officials to rescind the order until the county board votes on it. The resolution is non-binding, which means that even if it passes, Public Health Madison Dane County isn't obligated to rescind the order. In their open letter, Board of Health members write that, quote, The board finds it extremely disheartening that Supervisor Weigand has chosen to use his platform to bring forth a resolution that suggests that public health decisions aren't based on science, facts, and data. That is simply not true and further spreads misinformation, unquote. Weigand's resolution is co-sponsored by Supervisors Dave Ripp and Tim Rockwell. And now, here's your daily COVID-19 news and numbers. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,482 cases per day. That's according to the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. Meanwhile, the Wisconsin State Journal reports that two Madison School District classrooms have been quarantined due to COVID-19. Students, teachers, and staff from the two classes have been in quarantine since the start of the semester two weeks ago. And now, on to today's top stories. 
The City of Madison is seeking input from those with disabilities to guide future street planning efforts. City staff hope the feedback will make streets and transit more accessible to everyone. Our producer, Jonah Chester, has the story. Madison is pushing forward on a number of transportation projects in the coming years, including Bus Rapid Transit, a program to reduce traffic speed citywide, and a project that seeks to make streets more environmentally friendly. To help guide those projects, the city is soliciting public input through its Let's Talk Streets campaign. Now, Madison's traffic engineering department is looking for feedback from folks with disabilities, their families, and service providers. Renee Calloway, Madison's pedestrian bicycle administrator, says that feedback will help make future projects safer for those with disabilities. We're really just trying to learn a little bit more about what are kind of the biggest challenges for somebody who has a disability that really impacts their their mobility and what kind of a day in their life is like as they try to get to wherever they need to go. At the core of the Let's Talk Streets campaign is an effort to balance traffic needs with the idea of a street as a public space. City streets haven't always been used exclusively for cars. They were once community hubs, as explained by an informational video posted to the city's website. America's streets, and therefore our cities, largely reflect our car-oriented culture. Cars are an important part of the transportation system, but our efforts to make driving easier have come at a cost. This raises the question of how did we get here and why? Galloway can answer that question. Some of the first people to advocate for paved streets were people riding bikes because, you know, the dirt rutted streets of carriages just didn't work for them. But then, you know, the cars started to grow and they became more, I guess, more people had them and they started, there started to be safety concerns, right, Um, between all the different users. Callaway adds that the history of street planning and redlining, which are racist housing practices, are heavily entwined. During the 20th century, city planners across the country rammed major roads through black, Asian, and Hispanic communities, scattering residents. You know, the impacts of just redlining in housing, which seems like a totally unrelated topic, but also impacted the transportation system and where bigger roads were. And I think we've seen a lot of things in the press for other cities about, you know, just major highways just going right through low-income or racially diverse neighborhoods and really changing those neighborhoods for the worse. Madison's Traffic Engineering Department has an online survey folks with disabilities can fill out, or you can reach out to Callaway directly for a print version. The survey closes on September 28th. In related news, the next phase of Madison's Vision Zero initiative launched today. Vision Zero is a multi-phase project that seeks to eliminate traffic-related deaths in Madison by 2030. For this phase of the project, the city has lowered the speed limit on Whitney Way from Raymond Road to the Beltline from 30 to 25 miles per hour. According to the city, a person hit by a car going 30 miles per hour is 70% more likely to die than if they're hit by a vehicle going 25 miles per hour. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Political observers say false claims are still being made about the outcome of last year's presidential election. And in some states, investigations continue to be carried out under rhetoric that the election was stolen. A handful of politicians and democracy groups say Wisconsin is emulating activity in other states they say poses a threat to democracy. For more, we turn to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Arizona has received widespread coverage for its controversial audit of last year's presidential election. And now a bipartisan coalition of political leaders and pro-democracy groups says it's seeing similar patterns emerge in the Badger State. 
In a newly released memo, the state's United Democracy Center said there are similarities between two investigations in Wisconsin and the Arizona audit, which has been criticized for a lack of transparency, among other things. Republican Trey Grayson, the former Kentucky Secretary of State, called out Assembly Speaker Robin Voss for changing his stance on whether there should be more reviews of the vote. Party leaders, one of the burdens of leadership is saying no to bad ideas that are coming from the base. Sentiments about the election being stolen from former President Donald Trump have come from far-right politicians and voters, but the courts have rejected those claims. Voss recently ordered an election probe to be led by a former state Supreme Court justice. His office did not respond to a request for comment before deadline. The memo says Voss's investigation, along with subpoenas sought by another GOP lawmaker, lack public details and could cost taxpayers a lot of money. There's also a third Wisconsin effort. An audit is being led by the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau. But that was also requested by Republicans in a move opponents describe as a political stunt. The coalition says previous reviews of Wisconsin's vote did not reveal any widespread fraud. Barry Burden of the Elections Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison says this coincides with surveys of local election clerks who are citing occupational burnout. They were beleaguered with misinformation and harassment and sometimes threats. Burden says that separate research by his team found the current environment is prompting a number of clerks to leave their positions. But he says despite the challenges, administrators were still able to conduct a fair election in Wisconsin. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On Friday afternoon, City of Madison building inspection staff ordered the immediate evacuation of a 12-story building on West Wilson Street. The building, which houses a restaurant and commercial office space, remains vacant as the property's owners work to address structural concerns raised by city staff. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Matt Tucker, the building inspection division director for the City of Madison. Can you walk me through the timeline on this? When were you first sort of alerted to the issues at 131 West Wilson? So our office uh, started the what I would call our current case uh, back in early 2018. Not unusual that we have a, a case for a matter like this that does reach back that far. It does seem like a long time. But uh, it's uh, these structural modifications, maintenance matters, they sometimes take some time to resolve. Uh, and we were communicating with and working with the property owner dating back to that time on this matter. 
So then on Friday, you, you sort of ordered an evacuation of the building due to the, the structural concerns. What was the, um, for lack of a better term, what was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back there? Well, actually, we our, our level of concern got heightened with this when um, we've been going down and observing the structure more often over the last, uh, during the summer and spring, uh, kind of tracking it and, and watching the condition of the property, just kind of pay closer attention to it. And we were noticing a, what we thought was some degradation that was causing us some concern, more concern than when, that we had prior. Then uh, about the middle of August, we received a report from the structural engineer uh, of the owner about the condition of the, of the ramp. And that was pretty concerning because it identified a number of rather significant structural problems that were identified as hazardous. And that definitely heightened our concern we were basically at a point where we were going to expect an immediate response to the structural engineer's concern, or we were going to potentially take a pretty drastic step of, of closing the building for no occupancy. Uh, the owner did immediately uh, rally the people to come over and start installing the required shorings in the parking ramp. Uh, that's been ongoing over the past few weeks. What happened on Friday was we were actually meeting with the owner to talk about this, and during that meeting time in the morning, a occupant on one of the levels contacted our office and told us that they had felt kind of an unusual uh, shimmy or shake in the building, and there something that would was not not explainable to like typical situation they may have, like a heavy truck on John Nolan Drive or a train going by. That didn't happen. Similarly, a tenant on another level of the building contacted the um, property manager and told them the same thing. That was a pretty significant cause of concern for us because we already have this relatively serious structural issue happening that's requiring uh, temporary shoring of the parking structure. And we have two disassociated reports of the same kind of feeling happening from two different areas in the building that was simply not explainable. So our decision was, you know, in the deference of caution, to post the building no occupancy until, at a minimum, we could get the structure stabilized per the structural engineer's approved plan and recommendation. And I think you may have you may have addressed it there just a minute ago, but just so I'm clear, have those minimum qualifications been met, and is the building once again back open, or is that is the work on that ongoing? Uh, the work on that is ongoing. Uh, the consultant for the owner told us that it's about a 15-day process to have the the shoring installed and uh, correctly. They're they were thinking 15 days from I believe last week Friday, so that's going to put it out yet you know another week and a half. So going forward, what what's the back and forth look like between the city and the building and property owner there? Uh, well, initially we have this temporary measure that needs to be put in place, but emphasis on the word temporary. This is not a, a tenable situation for permanence. They're going to need to make some decisions on how they're going to permanently modify the parking structure, the basement structure of this building moving forward. They could build walls. Uh, likely those walls will make it unable for the parking ramp to be used for the parking of vehicles. Just because they would obstruct paths, parking spaces, access aisles, those types of things that people need to get through parking ramps. Uh, we're at a wait and see. First and foremost, is getting the shoring in temporarily buys the time in order to uh, get a more permanent plan in place. 
Now, I, I think I may know the answer to this question before I ask it because I've never seen it happening before in Madison, but how normal is it for a building to reach a point of, of structural, questionable structural stability to the point that it is evacuated? Not normal. I am not aware of uh, that many cases like that we have uh, been in this type of a situation. We have a fair number of, of homes that we've posted no occupancy. Sometimes we run into conditions with apartments that don't have water and heat and other types of basic uh, human needs that have been posted no occupancy on a temporary basis. Other areas of buildings that uh, sometimes we've closed off, but um, I'm not aware of a time that we closed down an entire building. We, we understand the seriousness of this. Now, the people who were in the building, who were evacuated, who, who remain sort of unable to access the building again, is the city helping relocate them to new spaces, or does that responsibility fall to the property owner? Uh, that is a really good question, and um, I'm not exactly sure what the city can do. Uh, I have been advised that uh, tenants can contact the Office of Business Resources with the city. Saran Oak is the manager there. I'm not exactly sure what we can do. We have told tenants of the building that we are going to allow them to go into the building in order to get things, get items to, you know, just to run upstairs or whatever and make a short, uh, short visit in order to get stuff. But we don't want them in there working and using those offices, you know, like they typically would. Sort of zooming back out again, how does the city handle structural inspections on aging buildings such as the one at 131 West Wilson? What's the regularity of your checkups on structural issues like the one afflicting that particular building? Um, well, most of the time we're a responsive agency, so um, it would take a complaint or some other type of a reason for us to go into a building and check for a condition. We don't have people on our staff that are structural engineers, so we just basically would send a, uh, a notice of uh, noncompliance to a property owner and tell them to provide us with evidence that we feel is relevant in order to make a, a safe uh, or an accurate assessment on the condition of the building. Uh, and then leave it leave it to them to do it. In most cases, though, buildings are maintained by the property owners too. It's very regular and routine. Uh, this building in 1990 had a uh, a repair done to the parking structure that was uh, routine and normal uh, that we discovered as part of the record when we were kind of looking into the the condition with the property. And you, you'll probably see if you ever gone to city parking ramps that are older, they're almost constantly under repair and construction. There. Uh, we're always repairing them because uh, the elements and salt and, and whatnot are pretty hard on those structures and they need to be maintained to serve their purpose over time. So this has been addressed by you and speaking with other news outlets and in the city when they initially announced this plan. But let, let's just put this concern to rest here. Is there any threat of the building collapsing or, or suffering some severe structural disaster? At this point, no. We do not believe that's the case. There's been no indication uh, from the structural engineer or from our um, assessments going and looking at the property that there is such a threat. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about the closure, about the, the continuing structural integrity of the building that we haven't quite touched on here today that you, you think folks in the Madison community should be aware of going forward while this issue is addressed? Uh, sure, yeah. We are going into the building every day. We're inspecting the property every day just to check and make sure that it's not... Um we're not finding anything changing, and we also are are checking to be assured that the property owner is is continuing their commitment to shore up the building as we had had uh, agreed. Uh, so, um, just people resting assured that we are we are going in and and paying attention and staying on top of this matter. Matt, thank you so much for for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Sure, thank you.
Matt Tucker is the Building Inspection Division Director for the City of Madison. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We look at vaccination trends among Wisconsin's long-term care workers. The Past Isn't Past remembers the life and work of union organizer and singer-songwriter Ella Mae Wiggins. And we review two new movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Only 60% of Wisconsin's nursing home employees have been fully vaccinated, according to news outlet Wisconsin Watch. That's slightly higher than the statewide average, but it's in a field where those workers are regularly in direct contact with some of the groups most vulnerable to COVID. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Madeline Furstenberg, a reporter with the Wisconsin Watch. So you just authored a piece for Wisconsin Watch that examines the reticence some long-term care workers have uh, in in getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, help me understand how widespread this issue is. Statewide, how many long-term care providers remain unvaccinated? So in Wisconsin, as of late August, only a little over 60% of employees at these nursing homes were vaccinated. So there's still a significant chunk left that still need to get that done. Now, have those vaccine numbers been stagnant for a while now? Uh, It's been kind of a steady increase lately. Um, Yeah, I mean, there was a sharp increase when the vaccine was first put out there, and then it's kind of plateaued a bit. Just because the people who are left are people who are obviously hesitant and have their doubts about it. Walk me through what some of the folks who you spoke with, what concerns they've raised about the vaccine. Yeah, so I think the biggest concern is that, you know, in their opinion, the approval of the vaccine was rushed. And they're worried that there are long-term side effects that may show themselves in the future. Um, And then some people are, for them, it's more just about, you know, autonomy over their own body, not wanting to inject something that they don't know much about. In mid-August, President Biden ordered what, it, what is essentially all long-term care providers, something in the neighborhood of, you know, upwards of 90 percent, to mandate mm-hmm. vaccine requirements for staff. What's been the follow-through on that by nursing homes and by long-term care facilities? So I think most of them are following through on that. We did a spot check. I just called as many as I could. And from what I understood, a lot of them did follow through and implemented the vaccine. But there are some that haven't made that decision yet. Um, I know there's a concern that people who really don't want to get vaccinated will end up leaving their jobs and there will be a shortage of employees. So that's something that is also being considered at the moment. Let's zero in on that a little bit more. Talk to me more about the labor shortage concerns some experts in the field have expressed that this vaccine mandate may have. Yeah, so nursing homes are already understaffed in Wisconsin. 
And there's just a concern that people don't want to be told what to do, so they're going to know they don't want to be... They don't want to be forced to get something against their will. And there's an organization in Wisconsin that's focused on nursing homes and long-term care facilities, and they're especially concerned that people will leave their jobs that are already understaffed in these nursing homes. What do those nursing homes face, the ones who haven't instituted a vaccine mandate? Do they face any repercussions for not following through with that and not issuing that now that President Biden has sort of doubled down? I know last week he sort of uh, reinforced that order as part of his new COVID and vaccine strategies. Are they facing any punishment for that or has that sort of yet to be determined? Yeah. So this mandate actually only applies to facilities that receive Medicaid or Medicare funding. Um, So they risk losing that funding if they don't implement the mandate. Madeline, thank you so much for for chatting with you. Those are actually all the questions I had for today. Before I let you go, uh, is there anything else you want to add to the record about your reporting? Anything we haven't covered here today you think listeners should be aware of? Yeah, um, I just want to say I think it's a really complex issue. There are definitely different, you know, sides to the argument. And I think that at the end of the day, people are going <laughs> to take the stance they want to make. And I'm not sure if, you know, mandates are going to change that, unfortunately. But we'll see. Madeline, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Madeline Furstenberg is a reporter with Wisconsin Watch. You can find her full write-up on Wisconsin Watch's website. That's just wisconsinwatch.org. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the life and tragic murder of union organizer and singer-songwriter Ella Mae Wiggins. sisters up and down that picket line for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long tomorrow september 14th marks the day in 1929 that ella may wiggins spinner singer strike organizer was killed in gaston north carolina wiggins was 29 her five young children went to the orphanage her death ended a bitter loray mill strike from the strike's start on april 1st to its defeat on september 14th The strikers were replaced by scabs, harassed, starved out, and arrested. Ella Mae Wiggins was born in March 1900 in Cherokee County in western North Carolina. When she was a girl, her father, a lumberjack, died in a work accident, forcing Wiggins and one of her brothers to work at a mill. She later married a fellow mill worker, Johnny Wiggins, and moved to Bessemer City in Gaston County, the southern center for textile work. They got jobs at the American Mill, Ten years later, Ella May had nine children and had been deserted. She lived in Stumptown, an African-American neighborhood. Her neighbors watched her kids while she worked 12-hour days, six days a week, making about $9 a week. She became a bookkeeper for the National Textile Workers Union, NTWU, a Communist Party-led union. She testified about the working conditions in the South in Washington, D.C., I'm the mother of nine. Four died of the whooping cough all at once. I was working nights. I asked the super to put me on days so I could tend to them when they had bad spells, but he wouldn't do it. I don't know why, so I had to quit. And then there was no money for medicine, and they just died. She was also a singer-songwriter. Her best-known song was A Mill Mother's Lament, which was recorded by Pete Seeger, among others. Ella May believed in organizing African Americans along with whites. She supported a resolution at a local meeting, which narrowly passed to admit African Americans into the Union. The mills had moved south for cheaper wages, 
Wages and working conditions had declined after a brief period of prosperity based largely on government contracts during World War I. After the war, thousands were laid off and wages were cut, but work was increased. By the late 20s, some workers were paid just $5 a week. On March 30, 1929, the union held its first public meeting and the workers voted unanimously to strike. The next day, April 1st, 1,800 of the 2,000 workers at Luray Mill walked off the job. They demanded a 40-hour work week, a minimum wage of $20 a week, union recognition, and an end to the speed-up. In response, management evicted them from mill-owned homes. The governor called out the National Guard. Strikers were harassed, jailed, and replaced by strike breakers. Nearly 100 masked men destroyed the union headquarters on April 18th so the Union started a tent city. The situation continued for months. On June 7th, 150 workers marched to the mill to call out the night shift. They were attacked and dispersed by the sheriff's deputies. Later that night, the police chief and four officers went to the tent city, demanding the guards hand over their weapons. A fight ensued, and the police chief was killed. Police arrested 71 strikers after the incident. Eight strikers and eight members of the Union's national leadership were indicted for murder, during the trial, a member of the jury went insane and a mistrial was declared. When the news came out, vigilantes began a wave of terror. Mobs ran strikers out of the county. On September 14th, a truck containing 22 strikers was chased down, stopped, and fired upon, and Ella Mae Wiggins was killed. She was an important leader whose songs had inspired her fellow workers. The strike collapsed shortly after her murder. Five Luray mill workers were charged with her murder but were acquitted even though the murder occurred in broad daylight in front of at least 50 witnesses. She is buried in the Bessemer City Cemetery. Three of her children were later buried near her. Hers is one of the biggest markers. The FLCIO expanded it in 1979 to include the words, She died carrying the torch for social justice. Gaston was one of several strikes across the region which failed but gained shorter hours and better working conditions in Gaston and Marion. Their efforts showed the way for the 1934 general strike, industrial organizing, and racial unity in the region. This, in turn, aided the rise of the CIO. But those are stories for another day. For the past isn't past. I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Federal lawmakers are currently considering a $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. Buried in that package is a provision that would create a path to citizenship for millions of undocumented folks. For more, WORT's Brian Standing spoke with Armando Ibarra, a board member of Voces de la Frontera, a social justice organization, on today's episode of the 8 o'clock buzz. 
Now, what exactly would the budget bill spend $105 billion on? What would that money buy? Well, it would, uh, it would be used to be able to help set up the infrastructure, right? The social, well, both uh, the process and the social infrastructure to be able to um, help adjust these large categories of folks that have been identified. On the, on the table right now, uh, they're talking about being able to help 8 million um, unauthorized immigrants in this country right now to uh, adjust their status from undocumented to or from a protected status to a documented status um, with a pathway to citizenship. Those three groups that are being identified right now are the, the, the DREAMers, um, the DREAMers, which are um, uh, a group of, of individuals that have protected status that are known as the young people that were brought to this country uh, with, you know, without them having any say-so. Um, included also are the TPS. This is another temporary protected status for folks that are seeking asylum here um, in this country. And in the third, those two categories are placed together because they're temporary protected status um, folks in that category. But then there's there's the agricultural workers, um, which ha- are in their own um, right now category of possible of possible adjustment, and the essential workers, which we know going through this pandemic that without the essential workers and without the immigrant labor, and specifically in this conversation, the undocumented immigrant labor, this pandemic um, would would and would continue to be uh, very much more difficult for all of us in this country. And so when we're talking about, you know, spending money on this and you talk about infrastructure, does that going towards staff who are going to assist in this process? Yes. Yes. So we, we need to have the structure to be able to, to create uh, the processes, right? Staff, processes to be able to adjust these folks. The important part here is the positive outcomes of such a, a system, of, of such a passing such um, legislation that adjusts people. It's good not only for the economy, but it's good for our community and our society at large. You know, as we stand right now, it's estimated that there's 11, 11 million unauthorized immigrants in our country right now, which is roughly about 25% of all immigrants in this country. But within those 11 million, there's an additional of close to 10 million folks, U.S. citizens, that are attached directly to these 11 million undocumented people, right? So what we're talking about right now is mixed status families, right? So folks, families where there could be a family member who's unauthorized with a direct relative, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, who is also a U.S. citizen. So we're, we're, we're talking about complete social integration of not just the worker, but entire families into their local communities, um, which is, is as important as anything else at this moment. We also know that, that during the pandemic, it's estimated that there was about 5 million, 5 million essential workers that um, currently are labeled as um, unauthorized that with this type of legislation that passes would be allowed, the process would be would be created and allowed to uh, fully integrate into into our um, U.S. life here. 
Now, you mentioned that uh, there's this bill would help about 8 million people find a yeah. way towards citizenship, but you also mentioned there's 11 million people who uh, are currently undocumented in the country. So who are the 3 million who are left out? Oh, so those are the folks that are, you know, well, they're people that are not in those those categories that I mentioned, right? So there, there's folks that don't work in essential occupations or in essential industries. There's, there's there are folks that are not dreamers. Or, or have another protected status, and they are not agricultural workers. So, so everybody else within that category would, would fit there. So, for example, a stay-at-home mother would possibly not qualify for this um, if they couldn't show employment or if they were not in one of those protected categories. So those are the people that are left out of the, current, the way that it's currently being debated in D.C., and Voces de la Frontera has come out in favor of this bill. Are you uh, advocating for a more expansive path to citizenship that would include some of the people who are not included in this proposal as well? Yeah, so let's let's first begin with Voces de la Frontera as an organization, right? It's a grassroots organization. It's the largest grassroots Latinx organization in the state of Wisconsin that has um, impacts not only um, regionally and statewide here, but nationally. They're very involved in organizing communities, um, in providing service for communities, advocacy for communities, but also in this last election, we're extremely involved in the GOTV, um, the Get Out to Vote during the national elections. And um, there's, uh, there's, there's many out there that will claim that Voces de la Frontera had a direct impact on the outcome of this last election in helping deliver Wisconsin to the Democratic Party. So that is one of the things that that is part of this conversation that's happening, right? So Voces de la Frontera is calling to Democrats and to the Biden administration, along with with many other uh, social movement organizations in in the country, to pass a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented immigrants. But unfortunately, that call is not being completely heard, and what's on the table is a, a path to citizenship for almost all folks right now at this point. Um, so Voces de la Frontera has been advocating for, clearly, for comprehensive immigration reform here in the state, but nationally as well. Right now, they're, they're about to send a caravan of buses to Washington, D.C. to go and lobby um, you know, legislators over there to pass this bill or these, these sets of legislation. Now, immigration reform has been a hot topic for years now. I rec- uh, George W. <laughs> Bush called for comprehensive immigration reform yeah. in the State of the Union speech back in 2007. And despite all those multiple attempts, reform efforts have stalled in Congress nearly every time. Is the time right now to get something done? And do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage to have it tied up in such a massive omnibus spending bill, does that help the the prospects of getting that reform done, or do you think that's uh, that's going to make it more challenging? So you've asked like a set of very uh, complicated, deep questions right now. <laughs> uh, so let's let's go back to comprehensive immigration reform as a as part of a, a larger uh, movement of not just immigrant rights, social movement, but also labor rights and human rights folks out there. And, you know, the last comprehensive immigration reform bill that we've had in our country was in 1986 with um, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, uh, IRCA, which allowed amnesty to millions of, uh, of workers and family members and folks here in this country without proper immigration authorization. Um, so that's the last time we've had any type of comprehensive immigration reform in this country. So uh, almost 30 years. 
So over the 30 years, we've seen a, a, an upswell in the number of folks continue to immigrate into the U.S. who uh, eventually have this unauthorized immigration status. In 2001, there was a, a chance, uh, a real chance, where we had a Bush and also then President de Fox of Mexico that were coming into conversations to to address the need for comprehensive immigration reform. And, and during those talks, they broke down because of uh, of what happened in on 9/11. And we are all celebrating the 20 years of of that uh, moment in our history right now. So they broke down, and ever since then. You know, it's become more and more difficult for um, folks that have been seeking folks. And by folks, I mean, you know, large social movement organizations and and folks involved in in these types of movements. Um, And in 2006, I don't know if you all remember, in 2006, at that point in our U.S. history, we had one of the single largest protests in our country where millions upon millions of people took to the streets the demand for comprehensive immigration reform. At that point in 2006, the movement had thought, hey, we're here. We were going to be able to pass some sort of comprehensive immigration reform to give relief to these people, to these workers, to these families, um, by allowing them to adjust their status. And again, that stalled. And um, to bring it to the contemporary moment, yes, right now in this budget reconciliation, it's the only way forward for comprehensive immigration reform right now, the way that, that, that Congress is polarized, this is one of the only paths forward to be able to move some sort of legislation that gives citizenship to maybe not all, but most. All right. We've been speaking with Voces de la Frontera board member Armando Ibarra. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Of course. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two movies about dysfunctional families. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, a fun Marvel martial arts movie, and Agatha Christie's Crooked House, an English murder mystery. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not... You are also your father. That was lit from the trailer for Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, co-written and directed by Denston Daniel Creighton, who gave us the exceptional Just Mercy. Creighton and co-screenwriters David Callaham and Andrew Lanham have taken an old Marvel superhero story and removed its stereotypes and problematic characters. This is a lively story filled with martial arts, magic, myths, family drama, and highly identifiable characters. It's the rare Marvel movie that is almost standalone. Our story opens with two millennial slackers content with their valet jobs in San Francisco, Sean Simulu and Katie Aquafina. But soon enough we see Sean is not who he seems when he is attacked by a gang on an accordion bus. Sean uses his martial arts skills to save himself and the innocent passengers as Katie tries to control a bus careening down the wild streets of San Francisco. This scene also delivers one of the film's best one-liners, from Katie to Sean. Who are you? Sean has to admit that he is Shang-Chi, that his family has a complex backstory. He explains this on his plane trip to Mali to find his estranged sister, Sha Ling, Munger Shang. Shang-Chi's only clue leads him to a fight club which ends in a cool fight scene between brother and sister. There's a nice cameo role here 
for comedian Ronnie Chang. Shang Ji's father, Wen Wu, the great Tony Lung Chi Wei, is an ancient master of the Ten Rings of Power with his own private army. His late mother, Fala Chen Shang Li, was the guardian of an ancient village, Ta Lo. The village, according to legend, upholds the barrier between today's world and prehistoric evils. In flashbacks, we see how the parents got together. Wen fought Fala to control her village in a scene that harkens back to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. There's a lot more, but you get the idea. A fun action-adventure movie that sets up a promising sequel. As true blue Marvel fans know, stay through all the credits for two teasers for the next movie. See it on the big screen if you can do it safely. Up next, another movie of a dysfunctional family. This one set in England. I believe the killer may still be in the house. Are you Sophia's sleuth? That's the idea. That was a clip from the trailer for Agatha Christie's Crooked House, co-written and directed by Giles Paquet Brenner. His co-writers are Julian Fellows and Tim Rose Price. The 2017 movie just started playing on Netflix. The film is set in the late 50s with sumptuous costumes, period music, and an A-list cast. Max Irons is Charles Hayward, the likable but bland private detective who gets an offer he can't afford to refuse from an ex-lover, Sophia Stephanie Martini. Sophia suspects her grandfather, Leon Edes, was killed by a relative. Hayward arrives to find all the relatives, in-laws, and the live-in tutor have motive and opportunity. Leonis was an SOB who kept a tight rein on everyone, including his youngest grandchild, 12-year-old Josephine Honor Nisi. One of our lead suspects is the grandfather's very young spouse, Brenda Christina Hendricks, a former Vegas showgirl. Lady Edith, the sister of Leonis, first wife, played by the great Glenn Close, seems the most sane one of the lot. Julian Sands and Christian McKay play embittered brothers with Gillian Anderson and Amanda Abington playing their respective spouses. Of those, Anderson is given the most memorable part. Lastly, there's the always angry teen, Eustace Preston Nyman. I was surprised by the reveal at the end, but it seemed plausible given all that came before it. Worth checking out for the fine acting, especially by Glenn Close and the beautiful cinematography by Sebastian Winterow. Not as good as the recent Knives Out, though. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and Brian Standing. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.